0: The Audible of the best in Bitcoin. This is The Crypto Economy. What's up, guys? Welcome back to the show. We have got a a read today. It's actually kind of a double take here. We've got two reads in one because they're both short. Um, and I have not covered one by um, uh, uh, Nick Zabo in quite some time. So we're doing uh, Pascal's Scams, Part 1 and 2, both of them uh, pretty short, um, for today's read. Uh, also, uh, don't forget to check out swanbitcoin.com. They are supporting this show and keeping the Audible of the Bitcoin space available to you guys. So uh, don't forget to check them out, swanbitcoin.com. So let's go ahead and jump into the read. Uh, Again, this is Pascal's Scam, uh, part one and two, and it's from the unenumerated blog, from uh, Zabo's blog. Pascal's Scams. Beware of what I call Pascal's Scams movements or belief systems that ask you to hope for or worry about very improbable outcomes that could have very large positive or negative consequences. The name comes, of course, from the infinite reward wager proposed by Pascal. These days, the large but finite versions are far more pernicious. Naive expected value reasoning implies that they are worth the effort. If the odds are one in a thousand that I could win a billion dollars and I'm risk and time neutral, then I should expend up to nearly one million dollars worth of effort to gain this boon. The problems with these beliefs tend to be at least threefold, all stemming from the general uncertainty, i.e. the poor information or lack of information from which we abstracted the low probability estimate in the first place. Because in the messy real world, the low probability estimate is almost always due to low or poor evidence, rather than being a lottery with well-defined odds. 1. There's usually no feasible way to distinguish between the very improbable, say 1 in 1,000, and the extremely improbable, for example 1 in a billion. Poor evidence leads to what James Franklin calls low weight probabilities which lack robustness to new evidence when the evidence is poor and thus robustness of probabilities is lacking then it is likely that a quote small amount of further evidence would substantially change the probability end quote this new evidence is as likely to decrease the probability by a factor of x as increase it by a factor of x and the poorer the original evidence the greater x is indeed Given the nature of human imagination and bias, it is more likely to decrease it for reasons described below. 2. The uncertainties about the diversity and magnitudes of possible consequences, not just their probabilities, are also likely to be extremely high. Indeed, due to the overall poor information, it's easy to overlook negative consequences and recognize only positive ones, or vice versa. The very acts you take to make it into utopia or avoid dystopia could easily send you to dystopia or make the dystopia worse. 3. The unknown unknown nature of the most uncertainty leads to unfalsifiability. Proponents of the proposition can't propose a clear experiment that would greatly lower the probability or magnitude of consequences of their proposition. Or at least, such an experiment would be far too expensive to actually be run or cannot be conducted until after the time which the believers have already decided that the long odds bet is rational. So, not only is there poor information in a Pascal scam, but in the more pernicious beliefs, there is little ability to improve the information. The biggest problem with these schemes is that the closer to infinitesimal probability and thus usually to infinitesimal quality or quantity of evidence one gets, the closer to infinity the possible extreme consequence schemes one can dream up. Once some enterprising mimetic innovator dreams up a Pascal's scam, the probabilities or consequences of these possible futures can be greatly exaggerated yet still seem plausible. Yes, but what if the carrier of such a mind virus incessantly demands. Furthermore, since more than a few disasters are indeed low-probability events, like 9-11, the plausibility and importance of dealing with such risks seems to grow in importance after they occur. The occurrence of one improbable disaster leads to paranoia about a large number of others, and similarly for fortuitous windfalls and hopes. Humanity can dream up a near infinity of Pascal's scams, or spend a near infinity of time fruitlessly worrying about them or hoping for them. There are, however, far better ways to spend one's time. For example, in thinking about what has actually happened in the real world, rather than the vast number of things that might happen in the future but quite probably won't, or will likely cause consequences very differently than you expect. So, how should we approach low-probability hypotheses with potential high-value, negative or positive, outcomes? Franklin et al. suggests that, quote, "...the strongly quantitative style of education in statistics, valuable as it is, can lead to a neglect of the more qualitative, logical, legal, and causal perspectives needed to understand data intelligently. That is especially so in extreme-risk analysis." where there is a lack of large data sets to ground solidly quantitative conclusions and, correspondingly, a need to supplement the data with outside information and with argument on individual data points. Quote. On the above-quoted points, I agree with Franklin and add a more blunt suggestion. Stop throwing around long odds and dreaming of big consequences as if you are on to something profound. If you can't gather the information needed to reduce the uncertainties, and if you can't suggest experiments to make the hope or worry falsifiable, stop nightmaring or daydreaming already. Also, shut up and stop trying to convince the rest of us to join you in wasting our time hoping or worrying about these fantasies. Try spending more time learning about what has actually happened in the real world. That study, too, has its uncertainties but they are up to infinitely smaller. July 14th, 2012. Pascal's scams 2. July 23rd, 2012. Besides the robot apocalypse, there are many other and often more important examples of Pascal's scams. The following may be or may have been such poorly evidenced but widely feared or hoped for extreme consequences. These days the fears seem to predominate. 1. That we are currently headed for another financial industry disaster even worse than 2008. Overwrought expectations often take the form of, much like the surprise we most recently experienced, only even more extreme. Two. That global warming has caused or will cause disaster X. Droughts, floods, hurricanes, tornadoes, etc. 3. A whole witch's brew of, quote, much like what just happened fears were the many terrorist disaster fears that sprouted like the plague in the years after 9 11. Suitcase nukes, the ticking time bomb excuse for legalizing torture envelopes filled with mysterious white powders, and on and on. 4. On the positive daydream side, Eric Drexler's molecular nanotechnology predictions of the 1980s, self-replicating robots, assemblers that can make almost anything, etc. A whole new industrial revolution that would make everything cheap. Instead, it was outsourcing and a high-tech version of t-shirt printing that made many things cheap, And nanotechnology became just a cool buzzword to use when talking about chemistry. Five, a big hope of some naive young engineers during the previous high oil price era of the late 1970s. Solar power satellites made from lunar materials with O'Neill space colonies to house the workers. Indeed, a whole slew of astronaut voyages and industries in space were supposed to follow after the spectacular And spectacularly expensive Apollo moon landings, a quote, much like recently experienced, only more so, daydream. 6. The Internet commerce will replace bricks and mortar and make all the money those companies were making, ideas that drove the Internet bubble in the late 1990s. Indeed, most or all of the bubbles and depressions in financial markets may be caused by optimistic and pessimistic pascal fans respectively history is replete with many many more such manias and scares whether among small groups or otherwise smart people or among the vast majority of a society sometimes poorly evidenced consequences do happen to occur just in ways very different from expected for example columbus following the advice of well-respected authorities like Strabo and Toscanelli, and heading west for India, ended up instead in America. And sometimes a lucky penny prophecy of a wonderful or terrible but very unlikely event comes true. Although hardly any of us ever seem to learn about these sage predictions until after the event. Then they only make us believe enough in prophecy that we fall for the next scam. And that was part one and part two of Pascal's Scams from the Unenumerated blog, from uh, Nick Zabo's blog, which we've read numerous pieces in the past. Um, uh, There's an ocean of great stuff on that blog. Uh, uh, Money, blockchains, and social scalability to date is still my favorite. Um, Exit and Freedom is pretty good too. Uh, I'll try to... I need to get a collection together of... All of Nick's stuff, um, because it really has been a while since I've covered something that he's done and it's amazing. Um, uh, also, quintessential, like, hands down, if you're in Bitcoin, you've got to listen or read to it, shelling out the origins of money. I just have a, uh, I think, I think it was probably because shelling out, um, there was a lot of really great new stuff in it for me, but most of it was very close to a lot of things that I had already, uh, read about or explored in other avenues whereas money blockchains and social scalability the concept of social scalability um uh, and, and what how bitcoin could provide that and like how money is uh specifically that sort of a goal like achieves that sort of a um characteristic that ent- just that entire concept i had not been introduced to before and it really defined um uh or articulated something that I had kind of been dancing around for a very long time but couldn't quite put a word to couldn't couldn't quite um narrow down for myself so uh, that's why I really really love that piece in particular but first let's talk a little bit about the guys supporting this show uh Swan Bitcoin you know you know years ago there were actually a number of times I've been in Bitcoin for a while so there were many, many times I missed out on stacking some serious Bitcoin because I thought, you know, I could get it in at just a little bit lower. You know, I made this idiotic mistake when Bitcoin was $30 thinking I might get it at 15 again. You know, I did it again at $100 thinking I'd get, it, get some at 50 maybe only to see the price skyrocket and think yet again, oh, I'll just wait till it comes back down. Do not be like Guy from five years ago. Be like Guy today. The safest way to stack sats and be a part of the sound money future is to buy Bitcoin at regular intervals and stop looking at the price. Swan Bitcoin has made this incredibly easy. It is a service that I have wanted for years and probably would have way more Bitcoin today if they'd been around when I first got in. Uh, Unfortunately for me, they weren't. But luckily, Swan Bitcoin is here for you. It is a way to securely and easily auto-buy Bitcoin every week, every paycheck, every month, remove the stress of finding the right time to get into Bitcoin because the right time is right now. In a few years, we may look back on today the same way I look back on $30, feeling like a fool having waited for 15 Check out the link in the show notes or go to swanbitcoin.com today. So with these... uh. Pascal's scam pieces. Um, uh, so I can't remember what happened. It was like a thread on Twitter. Somebody like linked to him or um, mentioned him. I think uh, in conversation with Nick. And um, uh, I had not, I had not read or stumbled upon these uh, posts yet on his blog. Um, there is, I'm embarrassed to say, there's a lot of the unenumerated blog that I have yet to explore. Um, but uh, God, it just, it just struck home. Like when I read this, I was like, oh man, what a great way to uh, describe this um, and to kind of, uh, I guess you could say, define these uh, predictions, these doomsday and or utopia style predictions. So in in case you don't know, Pascal's wager is the, um, it's a, a philosophical argument um, from Pascal that says essentially that humans uh we We bet our lives on whether or not God exists, and it's the idea that the cost uh if God doesn't exist um is very small it's very finite loss you know um you know you lose some pleasures or some luxury because you know you you lived in in line with the you know supposed quote unquote christian God uh the rules of the Christian God, whereas if uh if God does exist, you have uh, either infinite gains or infinite losses. You know you either either spend an eternity in heaven or an eternity in hell um if you basically bet wrong. Uh, so that's where he's talking about where it's there's a very small potential loss to assume otherwise. um, but there's essentially infinite gain or infinite losses if we uh if we just assume that it is correct. so, Pascal scams a, a Pascal scam is one that uh intends to take that same perspective that same supposed dichotomy of something you know in the real world and um you, you know creates some uh, crazy potential consequences regardless of how improbable and I love that one of the things that he talks about here is that um which i think is more often than not the outcome is that we've vastly misunderstand what the actual outcome is going to be um and there's so many like, it seems like the default like we feel, I feel like we're kind of in the age of pascal's scams like when i read this i was like god I, I just could think of so many that um were incredibly prevalent and it's kind of like the whole political sphere really is like a big giant machine that runs on support because of pascal's scams it's always that if we don't do something about this now it will be catastrophe it's like we just cycle from one to the next and the reality is that we almost always vastly misunderstand um well like i said the potential consequences but also just the probability of the event itself like the degrees of uncertainty that go into this thing so the first thing he talks about, like kind of in the threefold, like underlying problems of these, is that there's no way to distinguish, particularly when we're talking about unknown events or we're talking about something that is improbable. Um, we inherently suck at f- knowing exactly how improbable, imp- very improbable events are. Um, and any new evidence, no matter how minor, could have a vast degree of difference in the potential outcomes or estimations of, you know, probability in this, um, because we're already dealing with, you know, a a seemingly small multiple that is, you know, factored by the thousands or by the millions, like really, really changes any sort of sensible outcome. It's, It's just the illusion of having a statistic is the illusion of accuracy when all of the information that it's based on is so is so unreliable to begin with and that's kind of the the third point that he goes into is the unknown unknown nature of these uncertain events <laughs> is, is that like we're inherently trying to put defined numbers and probabilities on things that by their nature are things that cannot be defined or uh like have any sort of numeral uh nominal measurement it's almost always these Broad exaggerations and extrapolations from like a couple of overly simplified data points, essentially. But again, it's easy to seem plausible. Um, you know, like it'd probably make a good movie, but it's got nothing to do with reality. And just kind of going back to like to to kind of um give a clear example of what he means when he talks about like how this leads to an infinite amount of time worrying or hoping about these events is that like going back to pascal's wager is that this is not a this this is not an intelligent bet to make um and the reason is is because it applies to literally anything if we took that logic as a general philosophy like it makes sense from his perspective he's looking at it as the christian god because he's christian but if you just kind of look at it as like a blanket rule for, um, like somebody in a position where they have no idea about the answer or uh, truth of any one religion, well, then they necessarily have to take this exact same stance with every religion. So, like, it w- it wouldn't be that they needed to you know live within the supposed rules, quote unquote, of a uh, Christ of Christianity or a Christian God, but also of Islam, also of Hinduism, also of Buddhism, of uh, Judaism, like whatever it is, all the other religions, is that like if the consequences are of all, which is you know pretty pretty generic or pretty general, that believing the correct religion will get you into, you know, heaven or whatever it is, and potentially believing the wrong will get you into hell, wouldn't you sort of wouldn't wouldn't you be forced in that wager? to essentially take the lowest common denominator of all, like you, you'd have to live your life in such a way that you made sure that you were only allowed to do the tiny sliver of things that every single religion um didn't prohibit. But that's to say that there are no uh, blatant contradictions either in you know any single religion or uh, between religions, like where one thing says you must do this and the other one says that you can't do this. Like it, it clearly... It, because it can apply to anything like that's what he means by the whole there's an infinite number of things to worry or hope for and we would inevitably have to deal with an infinite number of pascal scams because you can apply it to anything that can essentially be thought up at all you know the wager would be no different like that supposed dichotomy would be no different with um you know if i believed in the flying purple people eater So essentially it should not be a factor in how I pick my religion or um, uh, like that, that itself should not be a weight. It should not be considered evidence because the perceived weight of it um, and the, the illusion of having, of being like a statistic, of being like a quantitative measurement or, or comparison, uh, just completely covers up and uh, seems to outweigh what would be the logical or qualitative reasonings or evidence behind it. It, it basically obscures the ability to look at data or or look at a situ- situation logically and intelligently. Now, one thing I find really fun about this, having been written in 2012, is kind of looking back at his examples. Um, the first one... Uh, I think is uh, more relevant than ever right now is that we're headed for another financial industry disaster even worse than two thousand and eight. Now, this is pretty funny because um like there's there's an interesting difference here because if, if we're just extrapolating that, ok, we just had a um previous financial collapse, and therefore, you know, quote, much like the surprise we just recently experienced, only we're going to get one more extreme, end quote. So by just extrapolating that from the previous one that we're going to have a next one or that we're going to have another one, clearly there's there's no real connection here. But I was, you know, in 2011, 2012, I was absolutely in the boat of, yeah, we're going to be headed for another financial industry collapse, a huge disaster. But I would say that was based on R- regardless of the fact that at the time I didn't understand it as well as I think I probably do now and even now I you mostly know it in kind of an abstract sense I, I just, I, I kind of I understand better the principles of money and when I see it being violated I can't tell you exactly what the consequences are going to be but I know there are going to be consequences because it's an imbalance and it's a misallocation of resources Um, so it's more kind of a uh, I, I'm just I can tell what the what the, foundation is, how the foundation is wrong unless that I know all the details about, you know, how the skyscraper might shake or fall when it does. Um, but uh, obviously in 2012, we were in the middle of a boom and that boom continued for a very long time until really 2019. It was towards mid to late 2019 that we saw the cracks really breaking in the financial markets. But, you know, maybe the Pascal scams, uh, like the Pascal scam of today would be that with this collapse, we're going to see the end of the dollar. Um, And, you know, sometimes, sometimes there's truth. Sometimes there's truth in that. I mean, like Venezuela, would you, you know, would we have called the fact that Venezuela's uh, currency was going to hyperinflate uh, Pascal scam, um, like, you know. seven years ago or eight years ago, whatever it was, just a couple of years before the collapse actually came. I don't know. That's a difficult one because I I feel like those are qualitative. um, uh, Regardless of how someone may treat it as a Pascal scam and may not have even the evidence for um, making their claim, I think there is evidence there. I mean, obviously, you know, Venezuela happened. um, And I think the dollar, whether or not it happens now, uh, we see all the exact same things that, like, we have eerily similar um, policies as Venezuela did. Um, probably could make it last a lot, lot longer. Already have. Um, but I feel like if things don't change, there's some sort of outcome. There's going to be some sort of consequence that we can't avoid. Um, so maybe, maybe part of the scam is in deciding what that outcome is Whereas the truth of it is is we don't know, we don't know. Um, and uh, hilariously, right now, the dollar is a lot stronger than it's been in quite some time because everybody's rushing for cash because we've got a credit bubble um that's you know bursting. everybody's uh, uh trying to get real capital for a lot of liabilities and leveraging that didn't have capital to back it. Uh, so therein probably lies the biggest Um, the biggest way to distinguish how that could be a Pascal scam is do we have any idea really what the outcome is going to be? We know things will shift. We know misallocations will get reallocated, but we don't know. We have no idea what the outcome is going to be. But then, of course, there's the uh, old and trusty global warming, the climate emergency. Um, It's funny, there's, uh, I think this will be uh, one of those ones that goes down in history as having exactly like so terribly misunderstanding what the consequences of it would be. Um, and uh, there's actually somebody I follow is the founder of Greenpeace. Um, uh, and he uh, is Patrick Moore. Uh, he's eco now on Twitter. And I follow him because he has the most interesting take on uh what the consequences of CO2 are. Um, and what's funny is that it's not like, like we're, we're kind of put in these two camps as a, Oh, you're either a climate denier or uh, the world's going to end in, you know, was it 12 years, two years ago, 10 years, we got a decade left before literally everyone is going to die. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty, uh, uh pretty easy way to set up quote unquote, infinite costs. But uh, the funny thing is that moore's argument is literally exactly the opposite is that this is actually going to be wonderful for the environment and um that you know you look in you look throughout uh, uh the history of the world and we're actually in an incredibly uh one of the lowest uh troughs in like over 300 million years or some some crap about like how warm or how cool actually um, the Earth is, and we're coming out of like uh, two uh, progressively uh, colder ice ages. So uh, he's got a just really interesting perspective that, you know, like uh, look at what like c o two is in a pollutant. It's great for plants. Um and uh, he talks about like the greening that we've actually seen because there has been a higher concentration of c o two. And thus we've actually seen um uh, a lot of, uh, well, you know, it's referred to as the "quote-unquote" the Great Greening. You can actually see from satellite photos the Earth getting greener because you know you put a you take a greenhouse and you pump it full of CO2 and everything grows faster. Um, uh, the plants are stronger, they're healthier, and they're greener. And it's not as if you know the like nature, like the environment, is not at risk because of CO2. That would be like, oh, we've got too much oxygen in the room; like everybody's going to suffocate. You know, that doesn't make any sense. So I just love to get his perspective because he's less about, um, he's not at all denying, you know, that we're producing CO2 and that it could very potentially be a greenhouse gas. He's suggesting that the outcome is actually a positive and something that we should like to have. Um, uh, You know, another, I think I saw him giving a speech or whatever, um, was uh, something about. What was it? Oh, it's about the ice caps. Talking about how uh, everybody's like complaining that the ice caps are melting and uh, mourning a bunch of glaciers. <laughs> um, which, which actually happened, which I thought was kind of funny. Um, but that, uh, that, you know, an ice shelf, a glacier, like the, the Arctic and the Antarctic, these, these things are deserts. These things have like almost no life. It's as if, you know, the Sahara Desert become a rainforest. Like, that wouldn't be a bad thing. That would do just the opposite. That would cause a, an explosion in the variety and divergence of uh, types of life, which, you know, like for our um, potential impact that we've seen in the spread of human society um, that has disrupted many environments and literally changed the face of the planet, That, that hell, that could be something needed. But anyway, the core idea is that, like, there's more than one, like, just because somebody has come up with an infinite cost and, like, here is the dystopia and here are the $10 trillion we should do immediately to avoid this dystopia, like, like when did the dystopia become the only possible outcome? Like, how could we possibly, like, all of the models up to, the, up to date have completely failed, they've all been wrong, how do we, how do we have any idea? We're so arrogant in thinking we know how these vastly complex and not even close to simple, like in any way, shape, or form, with so many factors, these systems are just going to produce these obvious and expected results from these two data points. You know, like I don't know, I see this everywhere. It's how I think we misunderstand the human body in these same ways. Like, um, and this all comes back to the anti-fragile thing, I'm listening to anti-fragile, so it's been stuck in my mind and I always end up comparing it back to that, is that these natural systems have their own mechanisms for responding and accounting for these things. And in fact, all of these systems get stronger when we don't try to micromanage them. Uh, In fact, trying to prevent volatility, trying to prevent effects on them is actually what makes them weaker. Um, That atrophy analogy, you know, like if a person goes out and gets exposed to lots of bacteria and, um, you know, uh, uh, gets, you know, minor injuries all the time, like and lifts weights or whatever, like all of these things prepare it for the time where it needs to lift a lot of weight, where it needs to sustain and survive against a big injury or when it has to fight off a terrible disease and uh, it makes the system stronger. Whereas if that same person stayed in bed and Clorox and disinfected everything and never left the house and stayed in bed, they would atrophy, they would become weak, their immune system would be worthless. Like it's not simply that um, we can survive and we are robust, um, that these systems, uh, ourselves and all these systems, the the climate, nature, like all of these things are robust and complex in the, how they respond to these um, changes in the volatility and environments and conditions. It's that they get stronger when they are introduced to stressors. And one of the pieces that make these systems so powerful is that individual, the micro pieces of it, each individual piece, each individual micro environment or um, uh, uh, you know, uh, each individual cell in the body, Like all of these things can actually die. The fact that these things are fragile make the system as a whole incredibly strong. And our attempts to micromanage this or to control it outside of simply, you know, working to make our impact less whenever and wherever we can, which the only way is forward. Um, in the context of environmentalism, the only thing that's possible is, uh, is new technology. That's it. That, that's what's going to fix the problem. Making vast costs and slowing everything down, and forcing uh, uh, forcing onto technology a like as if the political system is going to be able to better pick what technology is going to solve our problem. All of that is the equivalent of micromanaging an incredibly complex system. The economy is one of those systems, and look what look what that got us. Um, look where we are in finance. Look how well the micromanaging of our money and the interest rate has produced our sustainability. We've atrophied. We have no savings. We are weak and ready to be tipped over at the gust of a wind. Um, It just, we see it over and over that the real world is very different from our simplistic, like arrogant models that we constantly want to slap onto everything. Another one that I hear all the time that. Just people just will not record this one just seems so perfectly a Pascal scam to me is that automation is gonna kill all the jobs um it just like it's a it's a refusal to to look I think at uh the real world, but this one's very, very common um and I think it's absolutely absolutely the same sort of dystopia into the world like there have been. Technologies have done nothing but automate since technologies were a thing and what it does is it shifts value, it shifts productivity. All it does is make us wealthier to have to take less resources to do the same thing, which means that we have time to value and produce things that we wouldn't have done otherwise. There would be no market for podcasting in 1900. Why? Because there were no tractors and 90% of the world were farmers. Automating that did not get a bunch of farmers fired and perpetually poor. It created the immense wealth by having 99% of the population able to do other stuff. Automation is 100%, no questions asked, a wonderful, wonderful thing that is going to make us vastly wealthier as a society and more mobile and potentially, you know, like, what do you do? Like, what's, what's the alternative? We just stop making things easier and better? Like, that's the next way that we make things easier and cheaper and better and we produce more. Like, so, so you're saying that we, we should not fight poverty, that it is not good for us to be wealthier, um, and that uh, it, it should take the exact same amount of labor. I don't want to get paid more for my job you know i don't want to be able to produce more because that would be bad like like what's the alternative really is to just halt progress okay well then uh or or maybe do progress in a different way what kind of way what's the what's the other way what's this what's this great way that's going to allow us to produce more but then keep everybody still needing the same number of laborers to do the same job how's that how's that going to work but you know this all kind of leads me back to uh like, I couldn't help but hear the parallels to hyper-Bitcoinization. So, is hyper-Bitcoinization a Pascal scam? Is it, the, is it the equivalent of the, you know, financial collapses inevitable? Or is it the equivalent of, you know, global warming is going to destroy the planet in 10 years? You know, like, I would certainly say there's a heavy qualitative backing that There's a logic, um, particularly when looking at the exploration of monetary histories. there's There's a clearly defined set of um, uh, realities, I guess you could say, like looking at the real world um, and seeing the outcome of uh, competing monetary instruments. But what's funny about the idea that Bitcoin could become, you know, a global rec- reserve currency? which seems like a perfect example of this Pascal scam, you know, like, uh, you know, they, they use the, that idea of the wager all the time is that, you know, what's the risk versus the benefit here. If you know, you put 1% of your allocation into Bitcoin, you have a huge upside and very little downside. Granted, that's actually just like kind of basic risk and return assessment, but still, you know, it. You know, it it rhymes, you know, like if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, you know, what do you, how do we think about that? How do we uh, separate that out or do we? Um, But to be perfectly honest, like barring the failure of the Bitcoin system, um, barring the fact that Bitcoin actually doesn't work for some reason, the hash is uh, the cryptographic hash is broken or something about the incentive system cannot withstand a certain degree of adversary, you know, something like that. I don't, barring that, I don't see how it wouldn't eventually occur. You know, and I actually, it would be a lot more comfortable to not believe in hyper-Bitcoinization because it sounds crazy. You know, like, of course, it's great to be like, oh, yeah, Bitcoin is going to take over the world and... You know, we're all become super rich and citadels and all that crap. But I don't want to say that out loud. Like, because typically I'm going to sound like a lunatic. It's much more comfortable to be like, well, you know, Bitcoin could or could not become mainstream. I think there's a decent chance that it could be a powerful player on the macroeconomic scale. But I'm sure there are plenty of factors at play and blah, blah, blah. But the truth is, you know, I'm not being straight when I say that. Um, I don't, I don't think Bitcoin is going to die. And I specifically like, that's why I love like entertaining these ideas because I heard in my head, I heard hyper Bitcoinization when I read these two pieces and I couldn't help but think it's like, holy shit, you know, is this, is this an example? Like how, how do I define the difference between A and B when I believe something so strongly? But I don't think Bitcoin's going to die. And if it doesn't, it's the hardest money that's ever existed. You know, like. I truly think that it's going to obliterate every fiat currency that doesn't hedge in some way, that doesn't position for a reality in which Bitcoin exists. Um, and it's changing everything significant about the nature of extra-governmental money, uh, which did not, have the poss- did not have the potential to socially scale or move like it can in a world with Bitcoin. You know, the cost and barriers to markets that made, you know, isolated competitive fiat garbage even possible no longer exists. Like I think fiat currency, like the idea of nation state fiat currency was actually a transition, um, a technological transmission transition that during this, this middle era, um, there was a specific type of limitation between the... Um, highly abstract digital sphere and the the very concrete uh, real world sphere in which as our economy became more abstract but we did not have that abstract form of money in order to um, to scale it to socially scale it well then that's where that's where that barrier was uh, existed uh, that made the nation state fiat actually possible. But I think that was a temporary limitation. I think we are past that point now with the invention of Bitcoin, obviously. So, you know, I could walk it back under the risk of sounding like, you know, I'm promoting a Pascal scam, which is, you know, still a good idea, in my opinion, regardless of whether I actually think it's valid or not. Um, Because, you know, if, if, if I step back, if I step off a little bit and I'm not like crazy Bitcoin guy like I usually am. Um, it would likely reflect the lack of confidence in the person I'm talking to, so they're more likely to actually pay attention and see Bitcoin for something other than magic internet points. But I, I just really, I just really love these two pieces because it got me thinking, and it particularly made me—I um, couldn't avoid um, putting my own beliefs and bitcoinization and the whole—we're uh, headed for another huge financial industry disaster, which he, you know, referred. To Suggests is a Pascal scam in 2012, but here we are in 2020, and we're we're seeing it. Um, you know, how does the coronavirus fit into this? Like, what's the, you know, our models say millions of people will die in a couple of weeks. You know, like uh, we'll know that in hindsight, I guess. So we'll see how all this plays out. Uh, what a perfect example of seeing this in the real world. And you know, I said at the beginning of this that I feel like we're living in the era of Pascal scams where um and you know maybe that's just uh maybe that's just a visibility thing you know maybe that's just me it's harder to look back and see all of them i get these i get this incredibly simplified um barely a sliver of history like as told to what happened from pre- between period a and b whereas like right now everything's in our faces um and all information and ideas um, and Pascal's scams spread like wildfire today with social media and the internet and everything. So maybe it's just that it's it's so much more blasting me in the face that I have this like this silly uh, nostalgia as if, oh, this wasn't how it worked in the past. now it's worse. and you know maybe it's just the same as it's always been. but I just uh, I I wonder where all this falls, you know, like is our um like where will we land in our expectations? Will we get the uh, the utopia that we're looking for? Will, will Bitcoin be the global reserve currency? Something has to be the global reserve currency. It's not going to be the dollar for very much longer. So I guess the lesson to take away from all this is be very, very wary of any supposed risk or amazing reward that fails to recognize the clear trade-offs that are always present. And remember that there's always an infinite number of dystopias to think up. And we certainly have more unreliable uh, charts and data to pull from than we have ever had to extrapolate ridiculous theories and plausible-sounding ideas from we're going to have to get better at recognizing these because I think they will become more prevalent and they are, they they catch and they they spread like wildfire you know, they, they they create an emotional charge in people and we're like built, we're built as machines to respond to these emotions and these crazy ideas or this triggering and all this stuff so it it's, we're designed to spread these things so um, we need to be wary of it uh, particularly in this space uh, in fact, I didn't even talk about it. Holy crap. Like, what could be a more perfect Pascal scam than the blockchain mania of 2017? Perfect example. Perfect example. Just, we're going to decentralize everything. All these blockchains are going to disrupt all the normal versions of these services and networks and steal all of this value. And it's going to happen in two years. It's going it's to be overnight. And it's going to be immediate. And it's going to be trillions of dollars and you know if you look at what happened in the real world if you if you look at the picture of were any of these actually any of this actually occurring you'd see that barely a handful of any of these tokens networks systems exchanges even had a usable product and not one had one that was better than what they were supposedly going to disrupt so Super valuable and interesting perspective from Nick Zaba, as always. And it got me thinking, and I just had to read it on the show. So uh, I hope you guys enjoyed that, and I hope I didn't trigger too many people uh, with with talking about all these uh, relatively triggering and controversial topics. Don't forget to check out the blog. Like I said, there is a ton of stuff that I haven't gotten to um, and there's so many great things uh, on this blog if you haven't explored it. I'll have lots of links in the show notes to uh, past stuff we've read by Nick Zabo. Um, so many great things. Uh, like I said, bit, uh, blockchain and money blockchains and social scalability, uh, uh, shelling out, exit and freedom, bunch of great things. So uh, highly highly recommended. Don't forget to check that out. And of course, don't forget to stack your stats. Responsibly, don't forget to do your auto DCA at Swan Bitcoin. Uh, you can just head right over to swanbitcoin.com, or you can click the link in the show notes. That will also help out the show because you'll let them know that I am the one shilling for them, and I'll get shill points, and I love it. So uh, thank you guys. I love you all. Thank you for supporting the show. Thank you for listening. Do not forget to subscribe. And the one way, no matter what you do, that you can always support the show. Support the audible of the Bitcoin space is by sharing it out with everyone you know in Bitcoin and crypto and all the normies who are inevitably going to need a way to learn about all this stuff and learn about how to identify these scams and how to think qualitatively. And hopefully, hopefully, I'm providing uh, something along those lines. (laughs) All right, guys. Uh, Much love. I will talk to you all tomorrow in another episode of The Crypto Economy. Until then, take it easy, guys.